We have reached the Garden of Gethsemane and the rest of Jesus. And if you refer to the chart that shows their correlations, you see the Garden of Gethsemane is listed right here on Mark. It's really important on the internet to notice this. It's on Mark right here in chapter 14. If you notice on this chart here, it's all the way down here in chapter 26 in Matthew. And in Luke, it's in chapter 22 right here. You'll notice Mark and Matthew are substantially identical. Luke has significant differences. So while we will spend time in Mark and Matthew tonight, some of our most interesting comparisons will be found in Luke uh, as we read. So let's begin in Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 26. We're finishing up the Last Supper, and it says that at the very end of it, in verse 26 of chapter 14 of Mark, it says, when they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is across the Kidron Valley from the old city of Jerusalem. It has a beautiful view of the Temple Mount. Uh, the Temple faces the Kidron Valley and hence the Mount of Olives. It's, an, it's a, one of the prize views, and it's a garden. A uh, whole side of the hill was essentially an olive grove with olive, little olive trees all over the place. In that era, um, a lot of them. There's still a whole lot today, but there's a lot more population in the area and a lot more graves in the area than there, than there ever was in, in Jesus' day. Uh, but there are some sections that are still identified as the Garden of Gethsemane and have historic provenance going back to the first century, especially on maps of the area. So we know pretty much where this was, almost, almost exactly where this was. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. Now, when was the last time Jesus took Peter, James, and John for a special prayer session someplace apart? The Mount of Transfiguration. Uh-huh, yeah. And where Jesus got transfigured and you saw Elijah and, and Moses standing there uh, referencing him and you hear God say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And Peter sticks left foot in mouth saying, well, what do you want us to do? You want us to build you a booze here, one for each of you? Well, that was the last time he took them apart to pray. Uh, it's always part that precedes that about deserting and Peter denying that and all. Is that also carried forth in Matthew? You, you skipped a little bit there. Yes, I skipped a few verses principally to get on, on with the story. I, I skipped a few verses. I skipped from 27, 28, 29, and, and 30 and 31, primarily to, to accelerate on through to the rest of it. 
But if you want to go back, we can we can no, certainly just, cover I that part. If, I mean, if, I no, I did that on purpose. No, that's fine. I'm glad, did, I'm glad you said that because I was wondering. What I did that on purpose. I was I was trying to yeah, accelerate yeah. on through yeah, just principally fine. to save time. But we can go back and 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 pick that up. That's no big deal. Um, Fourteen twenty. Yeah, I said that. Pete, I was I was about to tell him my book didn't have Mount of Olives in it. Yeah, you were following along. <laughs> Yeah, when they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all become deserters, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all become deserters, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said vehemently, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. Now, if you compare that with Luke's rendition, you'll notice that the uh, location of it is somewhat different. It places this in Luke 22 within the supper itself before they leave to go to Gethsemane. Here they've already left. It's like they're chatting on the way to Gethsemane, on the way to the Mount of Olives. In verse 31, Simon, Simon, listen. This is Luke 22. Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you have denied three times that you know me. All right. Luke, Luke has rehabilitated Peter in advance. In advance. Yeah, he really has. Actually, in the context of the supper. Because yeah. it doesn't, they don't leave until verse 39. He came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, verse 39 of Luke. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's inserted this material in here. Uh, Luke has pulled it back from where it's found in Mark. And since we had discuss, discussed that last time, I was just was going to skip it and move on ahead. But discussing it this time uh, doesn't, doesn't matter at all. In fact, it, it fits quite well doesn't interrupt the flow at all. It fits quite well. He says, uh, verse 29 here in Mark 14, again, Peter said to him, even though all become deserters, I will not. And that impetuous attitude of his. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said vehemently, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. Well, let's see. <laughs> yeah. They went to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And as I said, the last time we saw him taking Peter, James, and John with him away to pray was on Mount Tabor in the Transfiguration. And at that event, what did they do? They fell asleep. Wait, wake up, find out Jesus is being transfigured, and try to get in the midst of it, and essentially they're told to shut up and listen, and 
God says, pay attention to Jesus. Well, let's see if they're going to pass muster this time. Is, is the transfiguration in all the Gospels? Or is that a... That's found in the synoptic chats, all three. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here he just said that he would defend Jesus unto the death and would not deny him. He can't stay awake, even to pray for himself. <laughs> much less anything else. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up! Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. In the garden, trying to pray, grieved, essentially begging his daddy, God, I don't want to do this. You can do anything. I don't want to do this, but I'll do it. I'll do it. So he, this says, prayed the same prayer again. So he's yeah. basically praying three times yeah. to God, not just once, but the same yeah. exact thing. Essentially, yeah. Get me out of this mess. Essentially, yeah. Okay. I, I don't want to do it, yeah. but not my will, but yours. Hmm. And he comes back and finds the disciples <laughs> sleeping even after having told them what's going to happen. Did they have a lot of wine at the dinner? Wine and heavy food. Yeah. I mean, come on. Oh, they're digesting. It's like after Thanksgiving dinner, you're sitting yeah, there watching the ball game, falling asleep because of the food. Okay, turn back to Matthew 26. We'll catch the parallel. And just letting you know, it is extremely close all the way through. 26 verse 30. And we'll just read it straight on through. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all become deserters because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go ahead to you, of you to Galilee. Interesting. A, 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 a sort of already a statement that is about it. This is, it's time. This is going to be it. 
You will come deserters of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, so this is not going to be all of it. I mean, yeah, I die tonight, but, and you're going to run, but then I'm going to be raised and I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So he's foreshadowing what's going to happen. Verse 33, Peter said to him, Though all become deserters because of you, I will never desert you. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. So certain were they. So certain. It's easy to say that when not confronted with the opposition. We'll see what happens when the arrest comes. How far is it from where they are right then when they're saying they're not going to deny him to Gethsemane? Well, assuming that the traditional placement of the Last Supper is correct, it's a little bit of a walk down one hill past the Temple Mount, across the Kidron Valley, and up. Mm. Up, up uh, the Mount of Olives to Gethsemane. So it's, uh, oh boy, a good, good mile. Oh, but they were tired after eating and drinking and walking all that way. <laughs> no wonder. And they had to, you know, yeah. they needed a it would be pretty scary too, though. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to deny you. I'm there with you. Don't worry about it. Now a mile later, up and down in the dark. Down and up, actually. Down, yeah, okay, down and up. That'd be a little scary. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to, the to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little farther, he drew himself, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not stay awake with me one hour? I mean, big talker, Peter, about, about you know, defending me and not deserting me. And then you fall asleep after only one hour. Stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial or into temptation. That's another possible rendering. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away for the second time and prayed. And here we get to hear Matthew tell us what he prayed specifically, not just that he prayed the same thing, but we get to actually hear it. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So it's essentially the same thing. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. We know what that's like be so tired that your eyes feel like they're heavy blankets and you just can't keep them open. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. 
Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It's really close to Mark. What's the difference between Mark and Matthew here? A little more detail on the praying. A little more detail on the praying. Any other things that you notice? I mean, yes, he does give us a little more detail on the praying. He does some editorial work on the grammar and the sentence construction. The word order is nearly the same, but he's polished the grammar a little bit. Let's give you a really good example of that. In, in Mark, he says, uh, verse 38 of uh, 14 of Mark, Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. This, um, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh, that's not the one I was looking for. Uh, no, up here, I missed it. It's verse 36. Abba, Father, for, uh, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. In Greek, it's three simple sentences. In the NRSV, it puts them into semicolons. Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. Choppy. Statements. Bang, bang, bang. Look over at Matthew. The exact same spot in verse 39. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. It's... It's... Flowier. Flowier. It has a slight more of a flow to it. Um... Let's see, there's another example of it too. Um, all right, verse, uh, verse, uh, very, oh, here we go. Um, verse 41. No, 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 42. Verse 42. Uh, no, let's go back in 41. 41. He came to a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? This is uh, Mark 14, 41. He came to them a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough! The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Two separate sentences put together by a semicolon in the NRSV. In Matthew 26, it reads a little differently beginning in verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So the sentence construction is a little spiffier in Matthew than it is in Mark. We've seen this before. Matthew coming along, following Mark, and polishing it up a little bit. Luke coming along and polishing it up sometimes even more. Sometimes they do harm, sometimes they help it. Here we see what Matthew does is essentially smooth over the rough edges a little bit. He also does something else. The brevity in Mark's account actually gives this a sense of greater urgency and grievingness. 
Uh, whereas in Matthew, while the urgency is still there and while the grief is still there, it says he threw himself down on the ground. It says that he is grieved to the point of death. All the words are there. The sentence construction speeds the flow up, uh, slows the flow down actually a little bit. It, it evens out the flow, makes it less choppy. And that gives it a feel of being not quite so much mm, urgent or pained, if you will. You can kind of catch that up in, in, in up here in that earlier part where he says to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And then the whole sequence down where he's crying out in verse 36 even, Abba, Father. It includes, the Mark includes the Aramaic reference for daddy, a reference for, for father, but in Aramaic, Abba, daddy. Matthew's dropped it. Why? Why does Mark contain Abba and Matthew drop it? My father, he says. Far more formal. Matthew. Matthew was a what, uh, tax collector, Hebrew tax collector. Well, the author was a Jew uh -huh. writing to Jews uh -huh. for whom... Uh, Close familiarity with the deity is just something that you don't do very easily, very well. It was already problematic that Jesus calls him Father. To call him Abba is really beyond the pale for Jews. Mark is writing to a mixed church of Jews and Gentiles, quoting from what Peter said. It, 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 it's not as much of a stretch, and yet it also is... Many, many scholars think it's a telltale sign of authenticity to have a statement like this in verse 36 of Mark 14, Abba, Father. It echoes this idea of familiarity between Jesus and the deity that is contrary to Jewish expectations and, and Jewish norms and, and, and what Jews would allow and was one of the reasons why Jesus was just so overboard for them. It, 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 he... he God is my daddy. Attitude is just way beyond their accepted point. And, and well, so... Authenticity, how? Well, it, it's the, Nobody was there to hear this. It's the, it's the contrary position. The idea being that if Jesus is depicted as doing something that Jews would find scandalous, then it's... And, and yet is not something that comes from a Gentile ethos or Gentile traditions, then it's something that could very well be authentic because they're not going to invent it in a Jewish community. It just makes it more difficult to follow Jesus. And hence, Matthew smoothing it over and getting rid of the Abba is what you would expect if they're trying to make Jesus appeal more to Jews who they're trying to get to become Christians, let's smooth over this. We already got enough problems. Let's smooth over this seemingly too familiar reference to God. Father is, is, is enough. It's hard enough. But Abba too, Daddy? Not just, not just Father, but my Father, but my Daddy. My papa, uh, the familiar child reference to the deity. 
Uh, Matthew does what you would expect to do if what we have in Mark is a little too familiar for your average Jewish audience. And that then speaks to some scholarship, uh, like, like the Jesus Seminar folk. They're not going to, the early church, the Markan community, isn't going to just invent this reference in Aramaic in the middle of a Greek text. <laughs> That's, that would be my question. <laughs> this Aramaic familiar reference to the deity in a Greek text, unless they got it from an Aramaic rendition of the story and it hung on in the Greek translation. And that's not going to happen unless it goes way back towards the early part. And that reference isn't going to be there, therefore, unless it was part of one of Jesus' ways of referencing the deity. And we actually have echoes of that in the earlier letters, like Paul's own letter, where he talks about referencing God as the Father, as Abba, which comes from the 50s, so which is before Mark by over 10, 10 or so years. So you have, you have a, a sense in which this reference would be, has a greater authenticity. Matthew's smoothing it over to make it more acceptable to your average Jewish audience. Luke ain't going to bother with it at all. All right. Um, so Matthew has smoothed over some of the grammar construction and the couple of cultural issues. He's given us a little more in, he gave us a, a peek at the second time Jesus went away to pray. Uh, Mark just makes reference to the three. Otherwise, it's nearly identical. Word order, word choice is nearly identical. Nearly identical. Let's look at Luke. Luke 22, verse 39. 22:39. He came out... Now, this is right after the, the Last Supper and after that scene, which... Matthew and Mark put earlier, and Luke drags out. Well, actually, Matthew and Mark put later, and Luke drags back into the supper. And yet the sequence nearly comes out almost identically the same. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. When he reached the place... This is also right after the lock and load. Uh, yes, the lock and load reference about you know bringing your sword, and of course after that sequence where Peter said I'd never leave you, or deny you, and they all say the same. Well, when he reached the place, notice they don't identify the place. That's fascinating. Mark identifies the place. It's Gethsemane. Matthew, following Mark, identifies the place as Gethsemane. It was important for Mark to include it. Matthew decided to keep it too, but Luke doesn't include it. Why not? Guesses? Yeah, the, the Greeks wouldn't care or no, would they? The, 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 the specificity the of where this is, is, I mean, it's the Mount of Olives, it's, that's good enough. 
But to a Jew of the diaspora, having just been thrown out of Jerusalem a few years before, now living up in Damascus area, let us say, they knew where Gethsemane was. They loved it. It was a wonderful place to go and look up at the Temple Mount. I mean, that was a great place. They, they know the area. They know where it is. So for them, it would make sense to keep it there. Ditto for Mark for, for other reasons. Not, not that the audience would have liked it, but the author and the author's source seemed to think it was important to conclude it. <laughs> But Luke, writing to Gentiles who've never been to Jerusalem and probably will never go to Jerusalem, what's Gethsemane? I mean, Mount of Olives is hard enough. Gethsemane would be a hard name to pronounce for them. Why do they need well, I don't know about that. But. So he just says, the place. When he reached the place, he said to them, pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Interesting kind of pulled from the other references. Then he went with he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away. No Peter, no James, no John, just himself. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, quote, "Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done." So essentially the same prayer. Now, who has brackets for verses 43 and 44? All right. NRSV has it. Does the NIV have it? No, sir. No brackets? What do, uh, what do you have over there? I don't have them. You don't have them? Luke 22, 41. Yeah, Luke 22, 43 and 44. Probably no brackets there. Okay, the brackets in the NRSV have a little note down here that says, other ancient authorities lack verses 43 and 44. I looked them up in the, in the textual apparatus of the Greek New Testament, and it says, the, the, the editors of the textual editors of the Greek New Testament say, this should be graded a C. And that's on a scale of A, B, C, and D in terms of assurance of it being in the autograph. This gets a C grade, which is pretty bad. Including verses 43 and 44 is highly questionable. It is found in the original reading of Codex Sinaiticus. Codexes D, K, L, X, Delta, Theta, and Pi, and Psi, and quite a few listings of other manuscripts, including the majority text, the Latin translations, the uh, lectionary, the Syriac, the Armenian, the Ethiopian, the Diatessaron, and also references in Justin, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, Dionysius, Arius, uh, Eusebius, Hilary, that's not Clinton, uh, Caesarinus, Nanzianzus, Gregory Nanzianzus, Didymus, and just a ton of other authors, okay? So all of these people and all of these manuscripts include verses 43 and 44. Right. But there are some manuscripts that include it with the two verses inverted, i.e. 44 and then 43. And then the oldest and best manuscripts, Papyrus 75, Sinaiticus, a corrector's note, 
Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, TW 1071. Some of the lectionaries, a couple copies of the Latin, the Syriac, and the Coptic, and the Marcionite, uh, Clement and Origen also lack it. Athanasius and Ambrosia also lack it. And Cyril, John Damascus lack it. Um, all of those people and all those manuscripts lack these two verses. All right, let's see what these two verses say. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength. In his anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. These two verses are lacking in the oldest and, in many cases, best textual witnesses to Luke's gospel, specifically Papyrus 75, and Vaticanus and Alexandrinus, and several others. But Sinaiticus, which is a very important manuscript of the Greek New Testament, <coughs> dating from the mid-300s, excuse me, yeah, the mid-300s, the mid Sinaiticus, dating from the mid-300s, includes it, but has had an editor come back and make a note saying it doesn't belong. <laughs> All right? But Vaticanus doesn't include it, and there's no note that says it should. And Papyrus 75 lacks it, and several others lack it, including an early Latin translation, an early Coptic translation, and several church fathers who lack, they don't quote it, where they should quote it. And so scholarship says, although the majority of the manuscripts contain it, there's no way to explain why these early copies would leave it out. And since Vaticanus and P75 leave it out, and Vaticanus dates very early, since they leave it out, it is best to think that it wasn't written by Luke, by the author of the gospel. However, because it's an important <coughs> two verses that, is, that we find in most copies, and it's the only incidence where this is referenced. Let's leave it in the text, but give it brackets and a note. So the NRSV puts it in brackets and a note too. The NIV doesn't even touch it, does it? Or does it say anything in the margin at the bottom? Uh, all it says is the deal where Matthew and Mark mentioned angels in their early chapters. Uh-huh. That's, that's all it says? <laughs> it doesn't say that there's textual questions as to the authenticity of these two verses. No, huh? Mine says uh, most early manuscripts do not contain 43 Correct. and 44. Correct. Most early manuscripts, specifically Papyrus 75 and Vaticanus, lack those two verses, which means as a matter of textual history, it probably wasn't in the autograph. Well, the NIV is even worse because it says well, only Luke the doctor mentions this specific way of yeah, stress with the, the with the blood and sweat coming. That's worse. That's lending authenticity to it rather than saying, oh, we, these might have been added. The textual history is not, I mean, it's it's strong in that the majority of manuscripts included and and the text and Codex Sinaiticus originally included it. This even goes on to That's tell good. what the medical uh, condition would be. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and read that. Read what the medical condition would be. Um, 
This suggests a dangerous condition known as hematidritis. Uh huh. The effusion of blood in one's perspiration. It can be caused by extreme anguish or physical strain. Subcutaneous capillaries dilate and burst, mingling blood with sweat. Christ himself stated that his distress had brought him to the threshold of death. You see that? It, that's, uh, I've actually seen it. Someone in a hospital room when I was serving as chaplain at Duke University uh, as a medical chaplain in the program there for one semester, I watched as this person was brought in and she had little bellets of blood coming down in her sweat. I said, what's that? And the doctor said, her blood pressure is so high it has caused capillaries in the sweat glands to burst, and she's bleeding into there and out that way. Yeah. I'd never seen that before. And then the doctor looked at me and he said, that's what Jesus did in the garden. <laughs> and I said, and it can happen just like this? And he said, yeah, under extreme pain, anguish, when you have highly elevated uh, blood pressure, that can happen. So. There's no question that this, that you know, verse 44 could happen. He was under a lot of duress at that time. Yes, he was. So in terms of his you know, possibility, that's not the issue here. The issue is the textual provenance for it. And it's not found in the oldest and best copies. And the copies we do find it in, even where we find it, sometimes we find notes saying this is questionable, or 44 and 43 are inverted in order. Or there are other minor variances in it. So even where we have it, there are variations. It's not consistent. And when you have textual variations like that, that's usually a telltale sign that the addition isn't authentic. So as a matter of textual critical study, that's just an important note. However, because it's only found in Luke, the New Testament uh, editors of the Greek New Testament, Nestle Elan, 27th edition, the NRSV and most modern copies still include it, but they usually include a note saying it was not found in the oldest and best. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree with marking it as such and leaving it in the text or putting it in the margin. But that's just the textual critic in me. I prefer trying to reestablish the text as originally written by the authors. Wow. Assuming this is authentic, that's a really uh, painful time for him. But we know it was because he said, it says that he was in great anguish. And in Matthew and Mark, it depicts uh, him as throwing himself to the ground and being in great anguish. When he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Not come into temptation. While he was still speaking. Well, wait a minute. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. Whoa, whoa. Let, let's talk about why these are so Well, actually, that was where I wanted to stop anyway. Okay. Good, good. That's where I wanted to stop anyway. Yeah, I wanted to ask that question before. Actually, we're now done with, with, with the parallel with what we just read in Matthew and Mark. So, question? Luke, Luke is just totally letting the disciples off the hook on, on this. <laughs> That's what we can. <laughs> you think? He, even, he even gives them an alibi for why they were sleeping. You know? Yeah. I don't know what, how you how sleep. I guess depression could make you 
sleep sleepy if you are walking a mile after you, all the drinking and the they were sleeping because of grief. 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 grief now frankly when i'm grief stricken i don't sleep no, you <laughs> no kidding but that's what that's what luke says here now notice the differences uh there's not this pray come back pray come back peter and james and john don't go with them a little distance from the disciples and then he goes a slightly further distance along and prays while they sleep and the other disciples sleep. No, none of that's there. It's just Jesus comes, you stay here, pray. I'm going to go over here and pray. He goes over there, prays, sweats his blood, and the disciples are... And it only happens once, not this three times. And Luke gives the disciples, as you say, a rather convenient out. When he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. Not because of heavy eyes. Uh-huh. Or too much wine and dinner and a nice moonlight walk. Exhausted from sorrow, this says. Exhausted from sorrow. Well, in my notes down here, it says that um, they gave way to the fleshly. Yeah, that's more like it. Well, yeah, that actually <laughs> yeah. reflects Matthew and Luke's interpretation. The emotional strain wore on them as well as... The flesh is willing, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak idea. The, the response was to capitulate the to fleshly cravings. Well, that sounds like they're going and having sex. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to read it. No wonder they Maybe they had a smoke. <laughs> they had a smoke and ate some cheesecake. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm. No, it goes on to say, thus they gratified their immediate desire for sleep rather than staying awake to pray for strength. Hmm. And the other thing is that without 43 and 44, this is very, very quick. Yes. Leave it out, and it's Jesus goes, he prays, he asks. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. When he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. How many? How they had time to fall asleep? <laughs> Obviously, the prayer lasted a heck of a lot longer right. than Luke tells us. Yeah, it was a longer stone's throw. He had a good yeah. long uh, So it's... It's uh, wow. another reason for including yeah. 43 and 44 is the brevity of it. Take it out and it's even briefer. Now, does it say essentially, essentially, the same thing as Matthew and Luke? Essentially, yeah. Take out those two They go to the garden. Yeah, take out those two verses. They go to the garden. They separate. Jesus goes over here and prays. Disciples go to sleep. Huh. Well, he's going to support these people 300 years later are giving him, letting us know that we know he had support from above with this angel came here and strengthened him. He was in great anguish. Whoops, I put that in the wrong place. He was in great anguish and then the angel strengthened him. You know? <laughs> uh, I love those two verses. Yeah, I do too. But textually speaking, they're a problem. And I tend to be something of a textual hardliner. If the earliest and best copies don't include it, I don't think it belongs, even if it sounds wonderful. Even if it fits. Even if it fits. <laughs> if the earliest copies don't have it, 
I really struggle hard against including it. I like the grade that the textual critics who devised this gave it a C. That means it's unlikely to be authentic. But since it's found in the broadest range of copies, let's go ahead and include it. So I like that attitude. I like that attitude. But I tend to be something of a textual purist. I prefer having the text read as close to the authentic autograph as possible. Yeah, but for the rest of us shallow people, that gives oh, you flush. depth. <laughs> And it does think about depth. the passion. Think about the passion. It does. When was, when it does. Saw that in the passion and the blood. Yeah, that came straight out of here. Yeah, exactly. All right. Any other questions before we continue? Because now we go back to Mark and pick it up where we left off. Yay, Mark. So back to Mark 14. We'll pick it up at verse 43. Notice he's just said, Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Bang, bang, bang. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him, there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of them deserted him and fled. And then, of course, let's go ahead and include Mark again. A certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught him, they caught hold of him. But he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. Again, that's unique to Mark, found nowhere else. And no question that's authentic in Mark, textually speaking. <coughs> All right. Hmm. Interesting. It's always depicted as being soldiers, but here it simply says it's like a mob that comes. Crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So it's kind of an official mob that have come. And then Judas's words, the one I will kiss is the man, arrest him and lead him away under guard. Hmm. So it's, you know, usually just see it depicted as soldiers, but it's not necessarily certain that that's what it is. At least not yet, not here. All right. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him, verse 47. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Wow. That's pretty good. Have you ever tried to chop off an ear and not take off the neck or the shoulder, too? <laughs> Unless the guy had jug ears that kind of stuck yeah, out like, you know, like Dumbo wings. How in the heck did he, you know, 
straight. Uh, oh, that's great. Hell, he went chopped off the arm yeah, and the neck and everything else. Yeah. Well, actually, he was going for his head. Could have jabbed. He missed. <laughs> and hit an ear. Going for a yeah. head. Could have been a bad go with him on it. I think Slave of the High Priest is also kind of an interesting detail. Yeah. yeah. Well, Servant of the High Priest. And who would be impetuous enough to do such a thing? Well, it's not named here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we do not have a name on it yet. We're going to get a hint a little later on as to who it might be. And then we will take a look in John's version of it just, you know, to see what he says. Don't you look there yet. Matthew 26. Let's get the parable parallel here from Matthew. Again, he's pretty close. While he was still speaking, right after having cried out, Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man, arrest him. Where's the rest of the directions? At once he came up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you are here to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and arrested him. Suddenly, one of those with Jesus put his hand on his sword, drew it, and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen in this way? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were abandoned? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. But all this has taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. He gives them another out there. He just got through saying so that the, the prophets might be fulfilled. They're, yeah, they're, and this then they is go. following. Well, I mean, they're, he's getting no. They're getting arrested. He's getting arrested. And this is what's ahead. supposed to happen. Right. And they run. The shepherd. It has been said that we strike the shepherd and the flocks will disperse. Right. They're just following what they're supposed to do. <laughs> and he just earlier on he quoted it. That's right. And now they're doing it. I think many, many accounts Judas uses the same excuse, you know. I'm, I'm just doing yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> preordained, you know. <laughs> I mean this to me, both Matthew and Mark are pretty tough on the disciples. Yeah. You know, they they, they got they well, seem to have very little respect for them really at that juncture. At all. The um, very little at all. Luke on the other hand is almost obsequious in his <laughs> yeah, yeah, efforts yeah. to Exonerate them. That actually has been noticed and picked up on by some commentators who say that Luke is doing this because he knows some of them personally. 
And while he knows the story of them running away, he wants to ameliorate the damage that their running away did. Makes kind of sense. It make that Mark would have known it too. But if Mark is wow. reflecting Peter's story and his own observations here, Peter may have been very, in fact we know, was very hard on himself. So it kind of makes sense that it be included. Matthew lessens it a little bit, diminishes it just a tad, not much, just a tad. And here, I mean, in Matthew, it's clearly, they run away. But it was said that they will. In, in Matthew, uh, verse 31 of chapter 26, then Jesus said to them, you will all become deserters because of me this night, this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Hmm. So, you know, Jesus said that was going to happen. Um, again, we have the chopping off of the ear. It doesn't say who did it. Just suddenly, one of those with Jesus put his hand on his sword, drew it, and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your... Now notice, here we have Jesus responding back to uh, whoever it is that did this, saying, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? So he carries on this conversation with them. Here's this guy standing there, no ear, and Jesus is carrying on this conversation with his disciples about it. I, I could have called for 12 legions of angels. Put your sword back. You're not going to need it now. It's a teaching moment. He's taking yeah, it's, live it's by the sword, you die by the sword. He's preaching a little sermon. He's, yeah, they're here, they're arrested, <laughs> the guy's he's preaching a sermon. The guy's sitting there with the ear hanging off, bleeding. Interesting. We still don't know technically who did it, what ear was chopped off, or the name of the poor sucker who got it chopped off. We just know it was the servant of the high priest. And it doesn't really say what he did after it was chopped off. Uh-uh, no, there's no, no, Jesus doesn't do nothing. Jesus, what, oh, 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 wow, look at that, huh? You know. Well, I mean, it doesn't say what uh, the Hey, don't put your sword back. <laughs> what? It doesn't say what the slave did either. Uh-uh. Probably. He probably put his hand on his ear. Chapter 22, verse 47. Now, you notice while he was still speaking is how it begins, but the, it's a different part in the story because Luke has chopped it up some. Verse 46, And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. No, hey, they're here. It's just suddenly, while he was still speaking, suddenly, a crowd came. And the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you are betraying the Son of Man? <laughs> no kiss. There's no kiss in Luke. Jesus stops him. He approached Jesus to kiss wow. him, but Jesus said to him, implying no, no kiss. Huh. 
But Jesus said to him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you are betraying the Son of Man? When those who were around him saw what was coming, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Do we get to do it now? Do we get to do it now? But someone didn't wait for an answer. <laughs> then one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now, who's impetuous enough to do that? Hmm, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know, maybe his name is Peter. <laughs> um, but no name. But it's the servant's right ear. If the servant's right ear is what's chopped off and you're facing the servant when you do it in front, what hand are you most likely using to wield that sword? Yeah, the, the, the attacker will probably be left-handed. Of course, the probable position is, is that it was from behind. That Jesus was being confronted, the servant was there, and whoever drew the sword to attack was attacking from behind. If the servant had jug ears, it would make more sense that that's actually how, I mean, here's this person, he's not a soldier, he, you know, he throws nets for a living, he doesn't, he's not throwing swords, comes up and I still want to know how he missed the shoulder and didn't chop off the guy's shoulder when he chops off the guy's ear, but he does, he manages to do it. Maybe it was a thrust and not a, not a swing. Nevertheless, Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Oh, finally Jesus does something in response to the guy who's lost his ear. But of course it makes sense that Dr. Luke would include that. And he's the only one who does, and there's no textual question that it belongs here. No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. There's no sermon about how I could have brought in legions of angels. There's none of this business about put away your sword for those who live by the sword will die by it. None of that wonderful stuff is here. Just no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Just like that. Hmm. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers and the temple police and the elders who had come for him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a bandit? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. What is that last sentence? It's kind of a sentence fragment there or something. Uh-huh, it is. It is. Let's look at it in context. Firstly, the essence is the same as in Matthew and Luke, where he addresses them and says, Look, I was with you in the temple and it, you didn't come and arrest me publicly during the daytime. You have to sneak in here at night and do it when there's nobody else watching. Now that kind of puts it into slightly different context when you then read what he says in Luke's version. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. It is a fragment, but it references something. It's nighttime. What happens at nighttime? It gets dark. It's dark. No the monsters come out. You, you stay under the sheets in bed so the monsters won't get you. you the, the, there's nefarious stuff happens at night. They're at night. It's dark. They've, they've come out to arrest him in the darkness in secret so that the people won't see. They can't do it in 
the light of the day. They can't do it with the people all around. They've got to do it in the quiet of the night where no one can see or stop them. The time, uh, their hour, the time when bad things happen, where people think they can do things and get away with it. Your hour and the power of darkness. In my notes, it says nighttime was a fitting hour for the servants of the power of darkness, and in parentheses, Satan, to be afoot. The children of the night. <laughs> Dracula, being afraid of the light, act, is active at night. This idea. <laughs> this this idea is very much part and parcel, though, of the Greco-Roman world that sees bad things happening at night, evil things happening at night. You also find it to some degree in, in the Old Testament where bad things happen in the dark. Dark is scary. You don't know what's going on there. And here Jesus is being rested at night. And he points out to them in Matthew and Mark... They're doing this, you know, day after day, verse 49 of Mark. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. <laughs> you didn't arrest me. You could have, but you didn't. Matthew, day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. You could have done it easily. But you come here at night when we're alone, just you and your clubs and your swords, and you're going to arrest me here in the dark. This seems to me, to, you know, I've read that you can read the four Gospels chronologically and you can see Jesus becoming progressively more divine and less human. In, in Mark, you know, he's really anguished. Mm -hmm. If you get to Luke, why, without the, the brackets, you know, <laughs> he's, just, he's just totally in charge of this situation. You're correct. Mark, it's a far more human-type response. Matthew, there's a degree of removal from the anguish. It's there. He's acknowledging it, but it's still a degree of removal, enough so that he spends some time preaching a sermon during the arrest. Luke is a slightly different approach, removed yet again to the point that he decides to heal the ear of the guy that someone named Peter impetuously chopped off. I mean, he, he commits a miracle there. And then he gives this statement, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. We're, it's gonna get even more so. Let's look at John's rendition. We haven't done this much. We've only looked at John one other time, but I think it merits looking at John now for John's version of this. So turn to John uh, 18, 18 verse 1, 18 verse 1. After Jesus had spoken these words, uh, essentially in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus in John's gospel prays this long high priestly prayer. I mean long. Well. Now, that's over with. After Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, 
also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Not some crowd, but a detachment of soldiers with, the, with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. This has been really beefed up. <laughs> then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, Whom are you looking for? Well, just ignore the bad English. Whom are you looking for? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am. Now, your translations have he there, right? right. Wrong. Uh, the he is added by English translators. The Greek reading is I am. The Aramaic would have been, would have sounded like this, Yahweh. He said God's name. You just don't do that. You don't do that. Jesus responds, but Yahweh means I am. Jesus said, I am. And Judas, uh, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Woo! Again he asked them, Whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Sounds like a rerun. Jesus answered them, Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you are looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave me. Note for Calvinists, that's the reference there when Jesus says, I will not lose a single one that you gave me. It's not that, that once saved, always saved, and you can't fall away. It's that reference right there, according to the John. According to John, that's what it means. Hmm. It has that specific reference. Um, Verse 10, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Imagine that. Your notoriety, your two seconds of fame, or however long it was, for all history is preserved in the Gospel of John because you had a Van Gogh moment and <laughs> lost your ear. Jesus said to Peter, oh, we're going to have his sermon <laughs> or something like it. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, interesting. In a parallel account between the Matthew, Mark, and Luke synoptics and John, there's a great degree of agreement. <coughs> now, yes, John has inflated it. We've got soldiers along with the police, as opposed to Mark's rendition as a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes. No kiss. No kiss. 
<coughs> we have the naming of the person who does the chopping of the ear. And the name of the person. And the name of the person who is the choppy. And it's the right ear, but there's no healing of the ear. Yeah. Luke concludes that. John leaves it out. Um, and yet, and it's not just that that uh, um, the author of John doesn't know Luke's rendition. Actually, it's a little more likely that he does because he gets the correct ear. Of course, he had a 50-50 chance. Yeah. But he gets the correct ear. Both say right ear. Matthew and Mark don't. Just say ear. Huh. Fascinating. I have a question here and there. Something occurred to me, and I noticed this in Luke, but I didn't bring it up. The, um, both John and Luke mentioned that uh, Jesus went to this place as was his custom. Custom. And yet he very... Wasn't this the first time he went up to Jerusalem? Not in John. Also, Luke talks about the... Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple police. Luke does make it a little more official than just a crowd that came at the behest of the chief priests, whereas Matthew and Luke don't really indicate that. Um, John makes it very clear. This is soldier, a detachment of soldiers. And... The temple police. I think, I think Luke had, a, had an officer or something. Yeah, it's right here in verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, the officers of the temple police, and the elders who had come for him. But this one, this John seems to be all yeah. you know, paramilitary people. But it looks, it, it, there's a question. Were these soldiers Roman soldiers? And the answer is yes, according to John. Because he differentiates between a detachment of soldiers and the temple police. Yeah, he does, but what? The Judeans would not have had soldiers. They're an occupied nation under the thumb for generations now. Which story do we believe out of these four? All four. <laughs> Two of them are saying that it was a mob, kind of like they came behind the guy. You know? Yeah, like a lynch mob. Right, lynch mob, yeah. With a sheriff there. Obviously not saying don't do it. Luke in indicates it's a mob, but there are some temple police right. officers in the midst of them. He doesn't really say what they're doing, though, does he? It says that they're there and they're going to take him away. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple police, and the elders who had come to him. I was, I was watching a PBS special this afternoon, a recording it of the Mormons. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a pretty good show. The, uh, but they, they say that uh, Joseph Smith's account of his, uh, with, with his meeting with the angel, he's, he kind of recounts it four different times, and it gets <laughs> bigger and bigger and more details. Different stuff happens every, every time, you know, by the end of it, it's much more elaborate than it is. Oh, sure, the at the beginning. You had all that glitter when you open that box. Yeah, know, and the and Sears tones and all that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Oh. Uh, so, it's interesting that John, which is usually highly divergent, has very little parallelism with the synoptics. In this case, here, it's, there is a degree of agreement here that's interesting. And beyond the ability to say somebody's making it up, there's certainly, John is certainly drawing from a source of some kind that has reference to 
the material that we have in the synoptics. They know about this guy, poor Malchus, losing his ear. And while it's fascinating, Mark, Matthew, and Luke do not name the disciple who did the Chapman. John does. And yet, even if we didn't know John, the one who is most likely to have done that is going to be the impetuous one who kind of leaps first and then thinks about it after he's over the cliff. And we kind of see that in Luke where they ask, Lord, should we strike with the sword? And with no answer, no even time for an answer, then one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Just a whim. Which one to believe? All of them, in a sense. They all tell essentially the same thing. Jesus leaves Last Supper on his way. We'll take Matthew and Luke's version. On his way, he tells them they're going to betray him. They're going to run. Peter says, I ain't going to ever run from you. Are you kidding? I'll die for you. They get there. Peter tries. He chops off Malchus' ear. He gets there. He gets to the garden. He prays. They sleep. Now, we don't have that here but in John, but that's what we have in the synoptics. And then the crowd shows up, or the soldiers in the military detachment. Judas is leading them, doesn't kiss him in John or in Luke, but does in Matthew and Mark. Arrests him. There is a fracas. Ear gets chopped off. Jesus has either sermon or healing event. And, yeah, <laughs> and then they cart him off. But you have to kind of ask yourself, well, why did they add things, you know? Because when you read it out of Luke, you get an idea of the problem. Just read it out of Luke without the questionable verses. Without, oh, excuse me, yeah. When you read it out of Luke without the questionable verses, you get a very short garden scene prayer. Then bang up, they're there, and then it's over with. Whereas in Matthew, you get this nice long sermon that fleshes it out and gives it a nice interpretation and a good lesson here. You know, those who live by the sword will die by it. Mark tends to be kind of choppy, just a facts kind of story. Here, give me the story. Here it is. This is it. And Luke, oh man, let's, 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 um, let's chop it up a little bit more. <laughs> no pun intended with regards yeah. to the ear. <laughs> and, um, and make it even briefer. And uh, e grammatically, Luke reads better until that very last final sentence, that fragment that's kind of hanging off the end there. And, and, and I guess the assumption is that Matthew and Luke had Mark <laughs> access. It is, yeah, Matthew and Luke had Mark. We're going to see a whole lot more changes from here on out, especially in Luke quite a few differences between Luke and the orator of events in Mark and Matthew. So that's going to be interesting to note those differences. More so, but we've seen this already. We've seen a difference in sequence of when Jesus teaches here and teaches there and how Matthew and, and Mark rend it one way and then Luke rends it differently. I mean, we've already seen that. So it shouldn't be a surprise that Luke has decided to adjust the order in sequence, even in the trial part. Um, but he does. But he does. Questions?
I, I think it's noteworthy that, that the style of the literature, whatever you call it here, has changed abruptly from what we've seen up to now. That everything else has seemed to be kind of a framework for teaching when you get right down to it. And this all this shifts gears, and all of a, a sudden story. You, you've got action story. Um, you know, a, a newspaper. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was the next critical point. Up until now, what we have is a vehicle for telling. What we have in Matthew and Luke has been a vehicle for containing the teachings of Jesus. Mark is the same thing, but briefer, with a little more emphasis on the narrative story of Jesus' life. Okay, his teaching, period. His, his ministry. With less of the teachings, Matthew and Luke pour the teachings in from other sources, especially Q. But now, after, actually it begins with the Last Supper, but after the Last Supper, most especially, suddenly you have this, okay, we now rush to the cross. Because that's what he's there for. That's what he's there to do. But you're right. We have a change in the genre a bit from a didactic, a collection of teachings in a framework, a narrative framework that tells the story of his life, be it artificially constructed or literal, that's irrelevant. It, it, interestingly enough, our earliest reference to the to these gospels in the in the letter of, of Papias, the writings, the book, excuse me, of Papias, he doesn't agree with Mark's order and sequence of the life of Jesus. He thinks Mark's wrong. He thinks Mark ordered it on a thematic structure. Actually, Papias was right. Papias was right. Mark has a thematic structure, much more so than a uh, chronological one. But Papias preferred John's gospel and John's chronology of Jesus' life, principally because he was a disciple of John. So that follows <laughs> that he would feel that way. But he knows there are differences, and he deals with it by saying that that. Mark wrote down the teachings of Peter, but not in order, but rather in, in thematical structure. And you can discern that thematic structure, which Matthew and Luke clearly grabbed onto and then utilized as the framework to insert the teachings. From here on out, while there are didactic pieces, and we just heard, we heard one in Matthew. We heard one in Matthew. And we have a healing in Luke. There are didactic pieces, but for the most part, it's let's tell a story from here on out. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal senior pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2010 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.